pre-bulimia when I was morbidly obese, something I found shameful was that I was walking around and I felt like everyone knew I had a problem with food because I felt like I was wearing it. But actually the most ashamed I've ever been was when I was bulimic and I was living in New York. I was living like Central Park South. I was killing it in my PhD program where everyone thought I was. Um, and like hanging out with my friends, I was like near, you know, where I grew up. It just felt like, oh, this is the pinnacle. My boyfriend was in London and I was flying to London every month. It just looked to the outside, like things were going really well. And every night I would be sitting in my classes and I would be scanning through the grocery circulars for all, you know, CVS, Morton Williams, whatever was around the corner that I could sneak to after class, buy like lots and lots of cheap food go back to my apartment and spend two hours eating and throwing up and then pass out and then wake up and starve myself all day, you know? It, and then, you know, trying to figure out the nuance of like, how do I eat in front of this person without them figuring out that I'm weird about food? The secrecy, ultimately, being able to hide behind looking normal and having things seem like they're going really well that was the scariest. I mean, the closest I came to suicide was probably when things were going the best and everyone thought things are great for me. And it's like, you have no idea my interior life. I founded the Be Well Collective, a not-for-profit organization that aims to bring nutritional education and mental health support to the fashion and creative industries. I believe the topics we discuss throughout our series are relevant to whatever industry that you work in or any issues that you might be facing. Because as a collective, together, we are stronger. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. Thank you so much for joining me today on this really interesting episode where we cover everything surrounding food addiction. You might be wondering what food addiction is. You might wonder if you suffer with it. You might wonder, is it the same thing as an eating disorder? It's very multifaceted and there's not too much research in this area. So I am thrilled to be able to actually speak to somebody who's personally gone through food addiction themselves, but is also experienced in clinical psychology, counseling and psychotherapy practice for the last 11 years now. I met Leah Kay, our guest today, an expert, um, on our Be Well Collective series and we were filming all of our videos for Mental Health Awareness Week and if you haven't watched them yet, I really urge you all to go and check them out. They're on our website. But Leah herself suffered with her own personal experience of food addiction for many, many years. And it's only recently that she's been able to speak about it honestly and so courageously. And when I heard her story, I felt that it was so important to get her on this podcast for her to share her own personal experience, but also to give her expertise and guidance surrounding shame and self-compassion, which is what her PhD was focused on. Now, whether you have food addiction or not, whether you have a complicated relationship with food or not, I think this episode is really important because it opens up a new area which is not discussed around shame and self-compassion. So I really hope you enjoy this. I found it so interesting and I hope that it can kind of explain a little bit more about why we're shameful towards ourselves and actually why self-compassion is is so important with an addiction, with any mental health problem, but just in general day-to-day life. Liat, welcome to Live Well Be Well today. How are you? I'm really well. I'm so, so grateful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm just really um, excited to be part of such a beautiful organization, really. We are absolutely, well, I am as well. I'm speaking on behalf of the team at the Be Well, thrilled to have you on because 
For many of you that don't know, Leah was involved in our Live Well, Be Well filming series, which is different to our podcast. And we did a host of mental health videos for Mental Health Awareness Week a few weeks ago. And Leah came in, was meant to speak on one topic. And I was just so amazed by her expertise. I basically gave her like seven topics to talk about. So it made me be like, she needs to come on the podcast. So I'm so happy you're here today. Thank Thank you for coming back for the second time and doing the podcast. (laughs) so do you know what today we're going to talk about a range of things um so being a nutritionist hearing that you had a personal experience in food addiction yourself really kind of perked up my ears to want to know more and your story from the live well be well videos was I mean it completely blew me away of your own personal journey but you're also done so much clinical research for the last 10 years into psychotherapy into shame into self-compassion and shame and self-compassion lays heavily with any type of eating disorder and food addiction and we're going to come into the difference of that in a minute but can you first of all just give a description of who you are and you know your own journey into food addiction Yes. Uh, um, I'll kind of intertwine my personal and professional journey because they are commingled. I mean, inextricably. Um, so I knew from a young age that I had, I had an addictive personality, um, still do, always <laughs> will. Um, and I think to some degree, I was kind of born addicted to sugar, addicted to certain foods. Um, hilariously, my mom, who is a quite a nice looking woman and takes a lot of pride in her body, when she would get pregnant, she'd use it as an excuse to eat all the foods that she knew if she ate them, she couldn't stop eating. Sign of a food addict. Not that my mom's a food addict. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But so all of her pregnancies were spent eating, as many women do, um, Mm. many people do this when pregnant is they just eat. So um, true anything, you know, cause, yep. oh, it doesn't matter. I'm going to gain weight anyway. Yeah. So I was born hooked on sugar and in the States, um, the food that we've got available, some of it's illegal here. Cause it's so, um, just hyper palatable. Is that like the high fructose corn syrup and things exactly. like that? Yeah. 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 I remember so that like when, when I, I lived there. Yeah. When I first moved to the UK and I was looking for the high octane American cereals, you can't find them here. Like there's Mm. just no cereal here with as much sugar as Mm. the stuff that I was binging on back in the States. Wow. Um, And I would go to the American shop in like Camden and just buy the guy must've thought I was crazy because it's like 20 pounds for a box and I'd buy like six and that would be, you know, that's a day for me. Wow. So, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So yeah, I remember being like maybe four, whenever you first start to read, I think I was about four years old reading the nutrition label on a box of, of some processed sweet mm. and thinking there's no way that's a serving size. And I was four, you know, like I should be eating less than an adult serving size. And I, I thought I must be misreading this. This is just adult stuff. I'm not understanding because I could never eat just say six of those. Mm. Um, and that was kind of the early warning sign Um, and it, and it addiction, it gets worse, never better. So that's what it looks like at four. By the time I was in my twenties, um, for me, um, I have a sort of a biological thing. I have PCOS, which makes it really hard for me to lose weight. So I only ever gained weight. And that's polycystic ovaries, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. Here you guys call it polycystic ovaries. (laughs) Exactly. Um, which has some association with sort of insulin insensitivity, things like that. I think it all played together. And, um, by the time I was in my twenties, there was a moment in, um, university, another sort of like, wow, there's something wrong here. I would go to, we, it's, it's CVS here. There's not really an equivalent, but like, kind of like I know CBS from living in Dwayne Reed. It's like, yeah, Um, kind of a one-stop pharmacy, but then they also sell some, yeah, food products in there, like loo rolls at the same time. (laughs) Right, right, right. Um, And I went in, I was at at university or I was in college and pretended I was on the phone with my boyfriend so I could buy bags of chocolate and nobody would think anything of it. Went back to my room and ate three bags of chocolate, like big bags by myself. 
And then, because I still didn't realize there was anything wrong, I was like, oh, this is normal. And I tracked it in Weight Watchers, trying to figure out like, oh, I can still lose weight this week, even though I just ate three full, when I say three bags, I mean like when you go to the grocery store and you buy like a month's worth of chocolate bag, I ate three, three months of chocolate. The red flag with Weight Watchers there, right there. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It works. It didn't work for me and it was never gonna. So, um, but the thing that really was quite troublesome is, um, so I did a Kundalini yoga teacher training plug for, for all of that wonderful yoga and all of that. Um, after I did the teacher training and because I was practicing yoga, doing a spiritual practice, I got some relief and, uh, for a year and a half, I managed to kind of intuitively eat and I lost 70 pounds, which is about five stone. Wow. Might be 80 pounds. Um, but the moment that my life got a little bit more stressful, I immediately, I remember the moment it happened. I had a stressful conversation with my brother followed by a stressful conversation with the person I was with at that time in a relationship with. And immediately I knew I needed food and I went upstairs. I ate an entire box of cereal in one sitting and hadn't done that in a while. My body didn't know what to do with that much food. It had been a year and a half Mm -hmm. and uh, I purged accidentally Um, and something switched off in my head that went, that's an idea, you know, that would work. And from that moment forward, a day didn't pass, uh, that I didn't binge and purge. And I got to the point most recently where like, there were some days I wouldn't leave my apartment. Um, I'd just be ordering food all day. Or if I did leave, the only way I could muster up the motivation to leave was if I was leaving to get food, to go to the grocery Mm. store, spending, Mm. you know, a hundred pounds a day on food. Yeah. And, um, and I wouldn't be able to stop until all the food was gone. So if I bought too much food, it just meant I'd be there for two days, not, not being able to leave the flat until I'd eaten it all and purged it all. Um, but while all of that was going on, I was also, trying to look like a normal person because Mm. what would have been even more devastating, what might've led me to suicide or something um, equally as destructive, not that bulimia is not destructive, food addiction Mm -hmm. is quite destructive, um, is I still needed everyone to think that I was like good and perfect and doing Mm. it all right. So um, I was working my way toward getting a PhD in psychology and I kind of thought that that would fix me. Um, I went to university. I studied psychology. I did a lot of research. I spent my whole semesters doing research. And then over the summer, I would go anywhere I could to do more psychology research. Um, I also volunteered on suicide hotlines and rape crisis hotlines. I taught yoga in in cancer support groups and prison hospice. And um, I just, I tried to become like as expert as I possibly could, everything that I could learn about psychology, about nutrition, about food. Um, uh, Ultimately, my research area is borderline personality disorder, shame, compassion, mentalization, um, mindfulness, meditation, um, sort of metacognition, if we're going to be really Mm. specific. And so I just thought if I learn enough about the thoughts that lead me to eat, then I'll be able to stop myself. And ultimately the only way I was able to stop myself is because about two years ago, my husband heard me purging in the middle of the night and he came, he knocked on the door and he thought I was unwell and um, he caught me, you know, and, and he, I just kind of broke down. I admitted it to him and he said, you need to get help. Um, and then ultimately I had been in an AA meeting because of grad school and grad school. When I was learning about group therapy, they made us go to an AA meeting in case we had to refer clients there. And I just, I'd remembered this spooky feeling like, like those alcoholics know something about me that I don't know about myself yet. And I looked up whether there was such a thing as food addiction and there was, and I went to my first meeting And it was, I remember it was in um, central London and I remember sitting in that room, like full of people who looked nothing like what I expected. I mean, people of all 
across the spectrum of like sizes, because not mm. everyone has the same manifestation of, of food addiction, but people different in every respect. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we started talking, we sounded exactly the same, the way that we ate or didn't eat or, you know, messed with our food. We were the same person. Wow. And that was two years ago. Yeah, that was, um, well, it was 2019, January 21st, 2019. What a journey. I mean, and you speak about it now in a, in a very kind of self-assured way, but you know, I can't imagine it being that I can imagine it being so traumatic going through all of this and, you know, what a strength of character to yourself to be sitting here now and, and telling your story so openly and honestly. And I mean, there's a huge sense of people always get into something that they believe in and follow because under underlining it, there's a reason. And it's the same. You speak a lot about self-compassion and shame and guilt and all of these things that are kind of aligned with any eating disorder. Um, and all of this burden that you carry, as you said, your husband didn't know. And that's you keeping a secret, which mm. is a huge amount to carry on your shoulders mm. through all of this. So mm-hmm. You know, for anyone listening who might relate to this, like what is the difference between a food addiction and an eating disorder? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. And it's a really important distinction. Mm. Um, you know, when it comes to food addiction, we kind of have to self-identify. So I can give a little sketch of what the difference is in my experience. Yeah. Um, but it's it's for each of us to kind of go through, I'm in a 12-step program, to go through step one and say, do I have a problem with X? Um, but the difference in my personal experience, um, I've done a lot of eating disorder therapy. I went into therapy when I was 12. Um, I told my mom it was because I wanted to be a therapist. But I knew that deep down there was actually, I needed help. Mm. I didn't know what I needed help with. Um, I'd bought a DSM when I was 10. And the DSM, let's explain it just for anyone who's (laughs) listening and is not sure what that is. Totally, totally. Uh, The DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is, um, it's a book used in the States predominantly it's it's by the American Psychiatric Association used to diagnose people with mental disorders mostly for insurance purposes but it's also just a really useful shorthand to talk about different disorders um if you hear someone say like oh major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder those are all DSM diagnoses yeah great question thank you <laughs> um so I bought one of those and I, I would read it and be like what is wrong with me? Like, what am I experiencing? And so I'd, I realized pretty quickly there was something with food, but the DSM only talked about bulimia and anorexia. And I wasn't purging at that point, though I wished I could, which is a sign of a <laughs> disorder. Um, and I, I was not anorexic by, you know, I was kind of the opposite of that. Mm. So I thought maybe, look, I'll see a therapist. Maybe she'll know, you know, I kind of, I, I put, some guru status on, on my therapist and thought she could fix me, figure me out. And I was in therapy for 15 years till I was 27. And I saw some brilliant therapists and helped me in other ways and in beautiful ways. Equally, I know so many people who had eating disorders, right? They were bulimic, anorexic. Maybe they had binge eating disorder before we called it that, because that's a recent one. Um, they went into therapy and then they got better and then they ate normally, you know, this whole intuitive eating thing that everyone's talking about. Mm -hmm. It works for some people, people who have eating disorders can eat intuitively and recover. And that's a miracle. Mm. What I needed ultimately was I needed a 12 step program for food addiction. I think the way that I was able to tell that I was a food addict is nothing else I tried worked. It's the last house on the block. And it says in the big book, you know, have you tried everything and nothing worked? That's one way we self-identify as addicts is, you know, there's this awesome list of it. It's alcohol. So they say like, oh, you know, did you try drinking beer only? Did you drink only natural wines? Did you try not keeping it in the house? Did you try only drinking with friends? These are all things that I try <laughs> to try to manage the way I would eat, you know, not keeping it in the house. Only at one point I was a raw organic vegan. 
because I thought, wow. oh, if I don't, yeah, there's like not a lot of food left when you're no. a raw organic vegan. You must just yeah. felt completely isolated in that sense as well with food. Exactly. And it's, I think to your point, which is a, such a beautiful point, and I'm, I'm really grateful you raised it about how am I able to talk about it now? I wasn't able to talk about it until I was out of it. So if we'd had this conversation a year ago, I would just tell you I was a psychological researcher. You wouldn't know any of this about me because a year ago, nothing else in my life was different. I was a PhD student in the same exact program. Um, A lot of people from my real life don't even really know the stuff about me because it's quite Mm -hmm. recently I've had enough recovery. Um, And my, my PhD supervisor, a man named Peter Fonagy, a brilliant man, Um, I once heard him say that, you know, in the early um, 20th century, before we made all this medical health progress, people used to be ashamed to admit that they had cancer because there was such a terrible prognosis for cancer that it was really shameful. People knew that they couldn't be helped. And, you know, it was a huge burden to, to share something like that with someone. I think that's where we are, or that's where I personally was with food addiction and with what I was struggling with, with food. It was my most shameful secret because I thought I was going to die with it. Where I came from, women who had eating disorders lived with eating disorders. And, and it's a weird one because if I saw a thin woman, I assumed that she was anorexic or I assumed she was throwing up. I didn't know it was possible to eat well and be a healthy size. And now, thank God, I'm living eating well and being a healthy size. And so it just speaks to how deep the roots of the um, the dysfunction go, really. It's so true. I think when people think about an eating disorder or food addiction in that sense, it's so vast. And I mean, from being in the fashion industry, I've seen so many different types of eating disorders. And as you said, people just think of anorexic nervosa or bulimia or binge eating disorder. Um, but there is a, so many more now as well. There's orthorexia, which sounds a bit like the clean vegan. And also there's many that can overlap. So you might not just, you might can't just define yourself always in one box because you could have parts of different types of eating disorders. And I also think what you said, it's so true, like shame and guilt, which we're going to come on to because that is really your area of expertise plays such a fundamental part in eating disorders and that can stop people from getting help and actually hearing someone hearing this story now might think well you know because you have been so incredible in telling your story this can help somebody else realize that they actually are allowed and that worthy of help it's that not feeling good enough to get help and especially in the media at the moment I know that there's been, I mean, from working on the nutritional side, there's been a huge rise in eating disorders. But mm. seeing kind of scaremongering headlines such as there's not enough help to go around and limited resources for eating disorders automatically, that's a barrier to you getting mm. help because mm. you're worried that there's not enough help available and where do you go and what do you do? So I think, you know, talking about all different types of eating behaviors and addictions is so important. And you've mentioned to me because food addiction is something that I've not heard too much about myself. And, you know, I'm kind of in the field of food Um, and it's something myself, you know, I'm educating through learning through you of food addiction. And I think just talking about the area of research briefly, because, you know, I'm always wanting to know about like the new research out, you made a really good point. It's actually such a new area there's really limited resources to gain insights from, from research from this, isn't there? Yeah. And it's, oh, it's such an important point, what you're making. I think it's, oh, it's kind of a tragedy. So the way that clinical psychology works is we have the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. We're at version five. And every time the version comes out, there's always disorders that clinicians feel like, well, you left that out. And the way that the DSM qualifies certain disorders to be included is they create task forces and then they have these like years long discussions. So only recently was binge eating disorder added. And this was, it's kind of like, um, like the government, like it moves at a snail's pace, the DSM and the American Psychiatric Association. 
So whereas binge eating disorder was recognized by clinicians a long, long, long time ago, it wasn't actually included in the DSM until this most recent edition. It's actually one of the biggest eating disorders. Well. Exactly, exactly. It's like the most percentage. It's crazy. I know. But where you mentioned, I think you mentioned orthorexia. Yeah. Not in the DSM. We all know it, you know, we clinicians and, and people with eating disorders know it's legit. And, um, or like compulsive grazing, or as you said, there's what we would clinicians or the DSM would call comorbidity, you know, lots of anorexic women are also bulimic Mm -hmm. or bulimic women who starve themselves, but technically because they're not below weight, part of the criteria for, for anorexia is you need to have a certain BMI, which I'll just one more well, time. Well, we know shame. BI, BMI isn't even a good measurement of health. Exactly. And my greatest shame was not being anorexic. I'm not good enough to have like the cool eating disorder, which is, mm. or like I thought bulimia was like a badass eating disorder. So I think when we harp, um, for those of us who have more complex issues with food, it's so easy to, the shame is like a shapeshifter. And we can feel shame about anything, including not being disordered enough. And so kind of having my feet in a lot of different spaces. So in the clinical world, in the research world, as well as in the addiction space, um, it's difficult because I know that if we stop trying to feed people through the NHS or through private and in the States, you know, my, my knowledge is mostly private, um, clinical work. Mm. If we, if we started better utilizing, and this is, we opt in ourselves, Mm -hmm. like we have to self-identify as food addict. We have to take our own initiative to go to find a meeting and to become, you know, a fellow of a 12 step program. Um, but if we can do that, which is like, a, it's a miracle. It's the best thing we can do for ourselves would be to go to a meeting. Um, it's free. And the help in a 12 step meeting is infinite because there's basically always a meeting, you know, somewhere in the world now that we have zoom and the more people that we get recovering, the more, you know, they pay it forward and they have a sponsee and they, you know, take people through. So when I hear on the news, exactly what you're saying, eating disorders are on the rise, but we don't have the resources to help. It's like, yeah, if we're talking about putting out a fire only with hose, but what if we just like, you know, I don't know, I'm going to not work All with come with buckets together and put it out. Exactly. Exactly. What if we took a totally different paradigm and we didn't try to use a hose? We don't have to worry about hoses. Exactly what you're saying. Let's fly over it. Like Mm. with lots of people in a helicopter who all pour buckets of water on top. Um, It's so important because I think, you know, finding the, founding the Beware Collective, it kind of comes in really well because it's a collective, the analogy that I use, Mm. because I, yes, my expertise is in nutrition, but I don't think that that is the be all and end all of how you live your life. You know, there's sleep, there's your Mm self-worth, there's mm -hmm. like, there's so many different areas. And I think that's why it's important to all collaborate together. And I think people really underestimate support. And, you know, I think when anyone's recovering from an eating disorder or addiction or whatever it is that they're suffering with, knowing that you've got a good support group is absolutely essential to any recovery because you can't, you can't be expected to do it on your own. And whether that's an amazing clinician and then family and then people that don't even know who you are but can relate to you like the more support that you can have in anything in recovery is fundamental to you know recovering basically yeah it's a really um tricky one that because I totally agree with you Mm. um but as long as we're talking about shame Mm. when when I was first um starting to recover I didn't have anyone, you know, I, I had my family, I had a therapist, I had, I was, I was dating the person who was going to become my husband. Um, I had best friends. I mm. had lifelong friends. I had lots of people in my life who now in recovery, I adore them. Mm. Um, but at the time I hated them. I resented them because I thought, how are you guys able to live and not 
um, be destroyed by the thing that I wake up and I tussle with every single day. Mm. I thought there was something wrong, you know, shame. I thought there was something wrong with me. Mm. And, um, so for me, actually the first glimmer apart from going to that AA meeting and I didn't even know it was, um, this is funny. So my boyfriend at the time, now my husband, um, he listened to a desert. This is so British. And I was in New York at you the say time. You Desert Island Discs. I'm about to. Yeah. Yeah. I love that podcast. I know. <laughs> um, and so Javina McCall was on and she was talking about her new book, her then new book. And so I listened, Dan told me to listen to it. I listened to it and I was like, wow, this woman is me but she's talking about heroin. I'm not a heroin addict. I don't know why I relate to her so much, but it didn't matter. It was the fact that she was talking about it and what, you know, I've been, I've been, (laughs) I'm going to say this now on a podcast. No one can challenge me. I've been obsessed with Brene Brown, um, like pre Ted talk because yeah, I mean, this is like, this is going back maybe 10 years. Um, and now thank God she's a force. And it's, it's incredible and it's so healthy for our society that we're all talking about Brene Brown. But what she says and what all shame researchers can acknowledge is that that phrase, me too, is it's just a balm. It's a salve. Mm. Um, it's healing. So hearing Davina McCall talk about, and then, I, and then I bought the book, I listened to the audio book and she was describing me to me. And equally, I was listening to a lot of Brene Brown. You know, she put out a lot of books around that time. So mm. I was listening to her audiobooks. Um, and then getting into the self-compassion research. Um, by that point, I was a birth doula and teaching kundalini yoga. So I think what I would say, the most useful thing I did before going into the rooms was putting myself in spaces where I saw people who looked like me before mm. I was ready to admit. And I think that was a huge... Um, buoy to my recovery was going into prison hospice, going into, uh, you know, teaching yoga where people share things with you, being a therapist where people share things with you. And then, you know, now looking back kind of in an exploitive way, other people being vulnerable with me is what ultimately gave me the courage to realize I'm not broken. There's not something wrong with me. I actually have this thing and there's hope. There's a solution. I can get better from it. It's such an important point because as you said, you know, you're this fantastic PhD student doing all these amazing things in your life. And from the exterior, you look like you've got it all sorted. Same as social media, you know, Mm -hmm. same as what we see people every single day. Nobody kind of rocks up and goes, yeah, yeah, look, I'm really struggling with this, 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 and this, you know, you have this exterior and it's the same with any, any type of mental health problem that you are dealing with, whether it's Mm -hmm. food or depression or whatever nobody really knows the interior of what's going on and I can also talk from being a clinician it does open you up more I think I'm definitely much more um open Mm -hmm. in how I talk on on social media and also with the charity because I see day in day out everyone's going through something Mm -hmm. every single person and it's that vulnerability and that's such a powerful thing isn't it to be vulnerable and to and to actually say how you're feeling and not feel shame for it Absolutely. And you're bringing me back. So when I, when I was pre-bulimia, when I was morbidly obese, something I found shameful was that I was walking around and I felt like everyone knew I had a problem with food because I felt like I was wearing it. But actually the most ashamed I've ever been was when I was bulimic and I was living in New York. I was living like Central Park South. I was killing it in my PhD program where everyone thought I was. Um, and like hanging out with my friends, I was like near, you know, where I grew up. It just felt like, oh, this is the pinnacle. My boyfriend was in London and I was flying to London every month. It just looked to the outside like things were going really well. And every night I would be sitting in my classes and I would be scanning through the grocery circulars for all, you know, CVS. Morton Williams, whatever was around the corner that I could sneak to after class, buy like lots and lots of cheap food, go back to my apartment and spend two hours eating and throwing up and then pass out and then wake up and starve myself all day. You know, it, 
And then, you know, trying to figure out the nuance of like, how do I eat in front of this person without them figuring out that I'm weird about food? Mm. The secrecy, ultimately, being able to hide behind looking normal and having things seem like they're going really well, that was the scariest. I mean, the closest I came to suicide was probably when things were going the best and everyone thought, things are great for me. And it's like, you have no idea my interior life. I think, you know, that's, it's such a really big point I want to make then because you mentioned suicide. And I mean, that is such, that is kind of a rock bottom part of when you get to that and there's just no way out for you. Everything just feels like you can't continue in this anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really important thing for anyone listening here and thinking, oh, well, maybe I've eaten a pack of cereal an evening or I ordered two pizzas one day instead of one. Mm -hmm. You know, how I think it's really important for us to define and talk about actually everyone has these times when they overeat or they eat too much or, you know, they enjoy food and they can, everyone feels a bit of shame even though we shouldn't when we overeat but it's very different to having these couple of nights when you're overindulging and overeating and maybe you have eaten the full jar of the cookie dough mm-hmm. um which you know we all do but there is a real difference between that being your every single day mm-hmm. life that you've mm-hmm. been in to in a food addiction t- just to general overeating or an occasional binge like can you discuss that as a as an expert absolutely yeah so um I think especially it's critical because we never know about other people. A lot of the eating that I did, even when I was compulsively overeating, was secretly. I binged when people weren't around. And I think that's a lot of people. We kind of close the shades and kind of shut the world out. And then we go in to the addiction. Um, It's so normal and human to occasionally overeat. you know, even now in recovery, if I have a tough day, sometimes I'll make myself like an especially delicious meal because food is chemicals and chemicals can be soothing. Mm -hmm. So there's something really beautiful about using food to soothe ourselves. Mm -hmm. And especially, you know, it's a cultural thing. Um, It's, it's familial, it's familiar. It's, it's beautiful. Food is, is, is miraculous. Um, it really can be. So it's okay sometimes to indulge. In fact, it's, mm. it's important to sometimes indulge. And also people, the way people eat, it looks so different from person to person. So there's just normal, like personal preferences. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like on one end of the spectrum, someone might naturally eat more or naturally eat less. That's quite normal. Mm-hmm. Then you have people who maybe eat emotionally But if given a good enough reason to stop, maybe their doctor tells them like, you know, this is impacting your health or their doctor tells them a lot and finally they find the motivation. Um, That's fine. You know, some people are just big eaters and that's okay. Um, Or equally, like they like to be slim. And again, that's okay as long as, and that's why this is quite tricky. We kind of have to self-identify um, in in the big book, something they talk about is they have moderate eaters, hard eaters, and then uh, what a dear fellow calls the real McCoy, the real food addict. A, a moderate eater, someone like my husband, where like, you know, I buy, if I buy him a bar of chocolate, he eats it in like two bites. It's kind of like a hilarious trick where he just like gulps the whole thing down. But everything else, he's really normal. And he doesn't actually, it doesn't bother him that he he enjoys eating chocolate that way, right? Um, or like after a meal, he doesn't need to have, you know, dessert after a meal. He's just, he's a very, very moderate, normal eater. Then you have someone who's what we call a hard eater. Um, I think of my grandfather who was constantly like eating huge amounts of food and putting on weight and then, and then going on a diet and losing it. And he'd keep mm-hmm. it off for like, couple like maybe 10 months and then he'd go back to eating lots like maybe every December around the holidays he'd put the weight back on and then he'd take it off um and actually at the end of his life his doctor's like you're pre-diabetic you need to start doing something about your food and he did and it was that simple he just changed the way that he ate because he had a good enough reason um or maybe some you know someone's feeling out of shape overweight or tired because they're not eating enough and they have a child and suddenly they have reason enough to want to do something about their health. Well, that's a sufficiently good reason. If they change, okay, you're probably not a food addict. But if you get to a point with 
with food and eating that you want to kill yourself or I don't know that I wanted to kill myself when I first went into the rooms. I don't think I was ready to admit how um, severe my problem was, even at that point. But I knew that I had tried everything. Um, what we say is it's like the last house on the block. I think if you feel like you've tried everything and there's no place else for you to go, congratulations. <laughs> this is very good news. I have the perfect place for you to go. Yeah. I mean, that's just, and that's the glimmer of hope that everyone needs, isn't it? When they're in, when they're in that despair. I mean, talking about this, I really want to get onto the shame and the self-compassion side, because that is where your research is. And this is such an important part of recovery and also not just recovery for anyone who isn't even suffering with a food addiction, having self-compassion and not feeling shame, even if you're just overeating that pizza. Mm -hmm. And then you might look on Instagram and go, oh, I haven't got her body or, oh, oh yeah. she would never do that. And mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. such a negative inner critic that we have mm -hmm. when that shame kicks in. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about like, if someone is listening to this, I was actually on the phone to a friend earlier and she's done a full career change. And she said that she was listening to my podcast, which was lovely on alcohol. And she felt such a big shame that she had two glasses of wine on a Tuesday night and that she didn't sleep as well as she should do. Mm. But that's it. I feel so bad. And she was really beating herself up. Um, and, it, you know, in my perspective, a couple of glasses of wine, fine. It's not something to feel so bad about, but it's true. Like shame can affect so many of us in different ways. When you're feeling that much guilt and that much shame, like what advice do you give to somebody? What we know from the research is shame and trauma are like friends. So trauma is something that we all experience just by being human, growing up in this world, none of us is spared from experiencing, whether it's what we call, um, you know, there's complex PTSD, CPTSD, which is like persistent trauma that takes place on a daily basis or a routine basis. Um, or something like, you know, capital T trauma where something big happens to you, something like a car accident or going off to war, these sort of discrete one-off events or, or time delineated events. Um, we can develop shame out of trauma. What shame does is in quite a, an evolutionarily adaptive way, if we no longer trust that the outside world is safe, then what is safe for us to do is to go in and to stop engaging with the external social structures that traumatized us. And so sh the shame then leads us to stop interacting with the outside world. What can be really tricky is for those of us who experienced quite a lot of shame growing up, we stop engaging with the outside world at ages when we need to engage with the outside world in order to develop capacities for self-compassion. So what ends up happening is that we grow up in this sort of shame bubble and we never develop the capacity for what we call in the research mentalization. And without the capacity for mentalization, which is basically it's higher order thinking, it's being able to kind of recognize our own states of mind and other people's states of mind, um, what we might be thinking or feeling, what other people are thinking or feeling. If we don't have access to that, then we can't engage with our own mind in such a way that we become self-compassionate. So that's all to say that if someone is feeling shame, Sometimes we can feel ashamed. I felt this myself, ashamed of being ashamed, especially now that it's so pervasive in the culture. Um, realizing that we're in shame is almost a shaming experience. And so the thing to say is almost let's like make this very black and white. Of course, you're feeling in shame because you're a human and you've had trauma happen to you. So like, it's just, it's just what happens. It's like the heart pumps blood, the brain thinks thoughts. And we experience shame as a protective mechanism. It's there to help us. The journey toward recovery, the journey toward, uh, you know, 
sort of a spiritual awakening, which is my life goal, um, whatever one's life goal is, just to be, you know, content, to be happy in order to get there. It's a process. So the answer about shame and self-compassion is, is that it's a process, is that it does take time. And um, just to put one foot in front of the other on that journey and to listen to people who you relate to, the people who are maybe a couple of steps ahead on the path. And so they they are in a place where they're not so ashamed to share what they're feeling. A really dangerous thing is to share with someone who's still in their shame. And then when you look at each other, you both feel ashamed because you remind each other of the shame that you feel about that thing. Um, and so as many, many beautiful speakers on shame talk about, like Brene Brown, it's really important to be careful who we share with. And if there's no one to share with yet, you know, I had that phase where no one knew that I was a bulimic compulsive reader, food addict. Nobody knew. Um, I told my family that I'd stopped the bulimia because, you know, they wanted me to be well. I wanted them to like me. I wanted them to like, think I was good. So I lied. I lied to my therapist and said I had stopped. The only person who knew that I was still doing it was me. And if you looked at my, <laughs> at my phone and all the podcasts and the audiobooks I was listening to, and that was a phase I really had to go through of listening to addicts, listening to Brene Brown, listening to people who spoke truth about the scariest, darkest places that some of us get to just so that I knew I'm not crazy. I'm not broken. I'm not unfixable. And I think that's the first sort of baby step there is like, don't actually, you don't have to share it with anyone. Just know that there are people out there who are going through what you're going through and give yourself the grace to, to listen to them. So would you say that like shame is then a, the first step towards shame would be knowing that you're not on your own to knowing that, you know, it's okay that this is happening. Yeah. Because I think the shame can feel, as you said, you, you can't share it because you're so worried, mm -hmm. but knowing that other people are having, maybe dealing with this, maybe even just having that thought process after listening to this is, a way of helping to make that first step towards recovering of that feeling of shame. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a thing in um, the rooms called terminal uniqueness. I think it's also an Irvin Yalom thing. Um, it's this idea that like, we are the exception. We are the most bad, the most broken, and no one is like us. And uh, the good news and the bad news is like, yes, okay, we're all unique in beautiful, special ways, but like, we're also not that unique. And my favorite thing is I asked my, back in the States when I was in a PhD program, I asked my research supervisor what he thought of Brene Brown. And he's like, she's just restating Kierkegaard. Like even Brene Brown <laughs> and her ideas aren't unique. Um, and in that way, I think like inherently shame tells us that we're alone. And we're the only ones. And so very beautifully put, at, just as you said, just to know that there are people out there who are going through almost precisely what you're going through. Yeah. Even in England, I went into the 12-step rooms and I found an American, like a little couple of years older than I was, but we were basically the exact same person. And it's like, oh, I'm not that weird. I'm not that different. And it's so true because, you know, we need to look at all of our qualities and no one's perfect. And we all, everyone has their own parts that they keep to themselves because they're shameful of it. But we are all exactly the same in the fact that we all have these different quirks or maybe it's a mental health illness or maybe it's whatever it is that you're struggling with, somebody else out there will be struggling. So maybe that is a really good takeaway for anyone that's listening that actually, you know, it isn't just you that mm -hmm. is struggling with this right now. And I think like aligning to that, another area that you talk about is self-compassion. And it's an area that I talk a lot about in my clinic with a lot of people who have body image, um, you know, worries about themselves and look at themselves in a very negative way. And it's so important to relate self-compassion to body image or whether it's a food addiction. You know, how can we incorporate self-compassion into our everyday lives and how important is self-compassion? 
Yeah, hopefully self-compassion becomes much, much more important in the sort of societal dialogue because it is, um, in my opinion, it's really the antidote to to shame, um, compassion in general. And in fact, just recently, there was a really awesome conference I attended, which was um, mentalization-based treatment and compassion-focused therapy, which is kind of combining those two. Um, so I think that there is progress being made, even in the sort of NHS um, milieu. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's critically important, but I think like shame, it's important to recognize that some people aren't there yet. Um, I was listening, Kristen Neff, who's um, a collaborator with Brene Brown, and I she spoke recently, incidentally, on um, someone else I'm obsessed with, Peter Atia has a blog where he talks about health. And he brought Kristen Neff on to talk about self-compassion, which I thought was really interesting and a sign that this stuff is taking off. And um, she mentioned that for her, it came easily because she grew up with really supportive parents and really positive self-talk, all of that, you know, self-esteem. For people who grew up in less supportive environments, and like I said earlier, if you grew up in a traumatized headspace and in a shamed headspace, you didn't engage with other people enough to have the capacity for self-compassion. Mm. So it is part of that journey ultimately to be able to love ourselves, to be able to think we're worthy of love. Um, even frankly, and this was a big one for me, to think I was worthy of not being abused. Because for me, the bulimia was just me punishing myself every single day like sometimes all day or sometimes just right only right before bed because if, mm-hmm. if I could only fit it in right before bed but every day I couldn't fall asleep unless I had in some way self-harmed and so part of my recovery was it's okay for you to go to bed and have spent a day without hurting yourself and uh, that was really radical for me Whereas for someone who had a really like different genetic whatever and a different upbringing and a different like existence. Dan, for example, my husband, who had a very normal upbringing, if I just raised the idea of self-compassion to him, he'd be like, oh yeah, I can be nicer to myself. So I think it depends on the person, but for those for those who I need only to mention the idea, there you go. Self-compassion is a beautiful thing. Begin to regard yourself with, um, you know, just some, uh, what, what I think is it Carl Rogers, unconditional positive regard. Because mm. we are all wonderful. People are at core, like pure and, mm. and wonderful. Um, for people who are listening to this and are where I was, which is kind of maybe as sick as one can get in that respect, um, it's okay. Like that's where you are today. And it's just going to take time, but not as much time as you think. Mm. And that is maybe the most important point if someone is really, really stuck in the depths that, you know, I think for me, there was just one day where Mm. I just kind of had enough and I'd been struggling. I struggled even in a 12-step program. You know, I was relapsing in a 12-step program and it was just, I heard enough experience, strength, and hope. I had a really, really compassionate sponsor. My Mm. my sponsor, like her thing was I'm just going to love you and believe in you until you believe in yourself. Um, But also I had an incredibly supportive spouse. I was in England, which meant I was away from a lot of the things that were triggering me. Triggers are a big one. Huge. And those are all things that were beyond my control. You know, I, I didn't know that moving to England or that marrying my amazing husband or any of this stuff, like it wasn't one thing. And mm-hmm. I, and if it had, if I had tried to orchestrate that, it wouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it's, it's, a, I, it's enough to just say it's a journey and it takes some people less time and some people more time, but as long as we're on the journey, I think that's, it's all we can ask of ourselves. And that's an area of self-compassion in itself, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. that you're actually on a journey and you are taking, you know, all the tools and resources that you can find and hope to do this and I think that's a real area of acknowledgement and I think for anyone who maybe isn't as far down that line of food addiction or 
what we're talking about, just knowing that self-compassion is so fundamental to your own self-worth is really, really important. So knowing your own self-worth, I think, is one of the most important things within your own health and mental well-being state. I think also, and this is just occurring to me now, I think if we can couch self-compassion as aspirational and not expect ourselves to be self-compassionate, like even like today or this month, but just knowing that it's out there kind of as a North star, that's probably the more self-compassionate because I can absolutely see myself being like, well, I am so not self-compassionate and then beat myself up. Yeah. And then putting shame on you again. Exactly. And it's, yeah. And then it's a vicious cycle, <laughs> but it's like noticing, I think it's just like noticing your own thoughts and yeah. your thought processes, because sometimes we can Precisely. get so far down a rabbit hole, can't we? And so it's like this, checking in. And that like beautiful, that's mentalization or that's what we would call med- metacognition. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of, I think what's really important for folks to remember is until we have mentalization capacity, until we have the capacity to reflect on our own thinking, we can't expect ourselves to be self-compassionate. So it, it's a process. And if the place where you are today is shame, if you realize that you are in shame, that's the seed. The seed is, is almost like having that self-awareness and it just grows and it grows and it grows. Beautiful beautiful I think you know there's so much more I want to talk about but we are running out of time and I always have to finish on a question which is I want to ask you Leah how do you live well and be well do you know what I have a good one is um in lockdown at the beginning of lockdown I think we all did this thing where we wore schlubby clothes schlocky kind of like sweatpants and sweaters and as the weather got better, I got this urge to, because I grew up kind of obese, uh, my favorite designer was Betsy Johnson and, or like Mark Jacobs and all these things that I didn't fit into those clothes. Well, now I'm old enough that that stuff is vintage. And so I went on eBay and a couple of those sort of online thrift shops. And I've just been buying up like 20 pound vintage Betsy Johnson dresses or like band t-shirts from when I was younger, all my favorite bands. And um, I go for walks on the Heath now and like five-year-olds are just so excited because I dress like a fairy princess when I go for walks. So that's what I'm doing at the moment is I'm dressing in like frocks and sneakers. Like I'm Lily Allen and it's 19 or 2000, whatever. Yeah. I'm a little obsessed with Be Well. Um, at the moment as well which is really giving me I love this mental health week I just watch them and it gives me a little hug so if anyone wants to I mean you're so inspiring not just from your own story and your how courageous you are and all of this talking to me but also your clinical side of things as well how can people find you if they want to know more about you and look at and or maybe come and see you as well because I know that you see clients Yes, I do. Um, so I have, uh, I'm on Instagram, which is talisman practice. My brother likes to make fun of me that my last name isn't talisman. A talisman is an, is sort of like a magical, um, like amulet or stone that we take with us that brings us magic. And that's what I think therapy does is you kind of take it with you. So at talisman practice, um, talismanpractice.com. And um, very shortly, I will be launching Talisman Podcast um, so that I can kind of share little snippets of of mental health wisdom and recovery wisdom, kind of five minute shots. Um, Yes. And and I do have private practice as well. Yes. Amazing. And also, you've mentioned so many times about the 12 step program, but I wanted to pop it in there Mm. at the end. You know, how can somebody look for that resource if they need it? Is there something they can find on Google or... Absolutely. Yes. Hugely important. Um, There are a bunch of different food fellowships because food fellowships, as we've already discussed, they take so many different forms. Um, So I'll kind of list off the ones that I know of, but a quick Google search will bring up lots of them. Um, There's Overeaters Anonymous, which is a big one. And that one covers the gamut of every single thing. It's not just about overeating. Um, it's anorexia, bulimia, overeating, undereating, grazing, orthorexia, you name it, they'll cover it. Um, there's eating disorders, anonymous, there's food addicts, anonymous, um, grace eaters, anonymous, 
and and there's always more coming out as well so yeah a google search is what i would recommend um but any of the ones i mentioned i've heard um are, are quite good amazing i'll pop them in the show notes and also your website and your handle so you know if people didn't catch it look yeah. at the show notes on spotify and and you'll find it perfect thank you thank so you. much for coming on of again course. it's fantastic to have you on the podcast it's been so wonderful and i'm just really honored to be part of this and um yeah just thank you so much for what you do because it's it's brought others joy but it's also selfishly brought me so much joy <laughs> as well Thank you so much for listening to Live Well, Be Well this week. I hope you found that episode as interesting and as insightful as I did. And thank you to Leah for being so compassionate and so honest around her own personal experience. It's really hard. I can can let you know as a clinician to actually put yourself out there yourself and speak about your own personal experience. So thank you, Leah, for doing that. If you found this really helpful, interesting and you enjoyed it please please share with your friends and your family do also leave a five-star review um it helps get the podcast out there more and show more awareness of these important topics and until next week i hope that you all live well and be well Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.